We just got done singing about Mount Pisgah. Anybody know what that is? Sweet Hour of Prayer was written by a guy named William Walford. He's a lay preacher in a small town in England in the 19th century. He was blind. He had a little shop in the town he was in where he would form bones and little pieces of wood that he found in town and he'd make them into you know, shoe uh, pullers and you know, just little tools around town. But he was blind and when he talks about Mount Pisgah, he's talking about the day that he will look into the promised land, his new home. Talking about the day that he will see. Mount Pisgah is the highest point in Mount Nebo, which is where God took Moses to show him the promised land before he died. So just a little bit of background. Uh, these songs are curated. They're chosen very carefully, and they're here to augment our, our service. So I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 11. We've got a long passage we're going to cover today, verses 1 through 4. And while you're finding that, let me just share this with you. Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our day, this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, uh, for we forgive those who sin against us. And deliver us from evil. You know, sometimes it's easy to fall into a perfunctory prayer. We know these things. And if I were to ask you to stand and say our Father or the Lord's Prayer, you would be able to recite it with me. But what does it mean? What are we praying here? And unless we know the context of what's going on, we don't know the full impact that this prayer will have. Now last year, last week, uh, Pastor Scott talked about prayer. And that was one of his primary points of his sermon. And I thought he just teed things up great because we're, we're here. Our next passage in Luke is about the Lord's Prayer. So the last time we were in Luke, two weeks ago, we found out that humility is hard. It's not something that comes natural to us. But a humble spirit is how we put on display our relationship with God. But that's hard to do. And then we have to admit that the world doesn't really turn around us. If we're going to adopt a humble spirit, we're not really the center of the universe. So this week, we're going to take that admonition to be humble uh, and apply it to our prayer life. So we can see that, that humility, if our prayers are going to be something other than self-centered, is something that we need to practice. So the theme for this week, the truth that I hope that you can go home with is, how do I pray? What, what do my prayers sound like? Now, we're in a time, and, and we've we got to be really honest about all this, where praying can be very difficult. Some of us have been isolated for 10 months, and it looks like it's going to go on for another five or six, maybe longer than that. And, and on top of that, we're, we're surrounded by a world that seems to be getting more evil every day. 
And we're being pulled by this stuff and seduced by it. And, you know, one of the tactics of the enemy uh, is to isolate us, to get us set apart from uh, the people that we belong with, other believers and, and people that are close to us. And, and, and so here we are in a, an entire world that is isolated and by itself. Yeah, we have some contact here and there, but we all know that it's not like it used to be. So there's an opportunity for the enemy to creep in there. And there's an opportunity for us to become lackadaisical. Go through my, my list of prayer requests for the day. God, please take care of this and heal this person and fix that situation. And now, okay, I'm done. Now what do I do? Well, let me turn the TV back on. That's the situation we're in. But Jesus has been showing his disciples how to walk the walk. He's been showing them that they're going to be the ones that do the work of the ministry. He's going to be leaving, and he's going to leave them in charge. And their their focus should be on their relationship with Christ, not on the power and authority that they have as believers, but they should take joy in Christ, take joy in their salvation, not in the things of the world, and that they should exhibit a humble spirit in everything they do and say. This week, he's giving us a startling example of what this looks like, how to apply all of those things he's teaching the disciples how to do. So the Lord's Prayer does not appear in this point in Luke's narrative by coincidence. He's giving them their charge. He's saying, here's what you're supposed to do. You're going to have to do this. I'm going away. Yeah, yeah, they haven't heard about the Holy Spirit yet, but that's a big plus because you're going to send the Spirit to help them with this. And that should be an encouragement to us. Now he's going to show them what this looks like in their prayer life. So very simple lesson today. But I think it's deeply profound and deeply complex. Our sermon is called The Lord's Prayer. This is uh, part 29 of God's love for everyone, our ongoing series and league. So we got two ingredients to our prayers. Now, any of you guys cook? People at home, raise your hand if you cook. Isn't that kind of neat? We all get to do this. <laughs> I mean, I, I like to cook, but if, if I'm doing something new, I need to have a recipe. I need to have something I can go by. I love looking at the recipe going, I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to use that. <laughs> but I got to have something to guide me. And yeah, I think it's a lesson that if you don't have the right recipe, you're not going to end up with what you tried to cook. Well, if, you know, our prayer life is kind of the same thing. We need to know the recipe for our prayer life. And there are two ingredients to our prayers. Number one, who to pray to? Who are we going to direct this prayer towards? That's in verses one and two. And number two, the second ingredient, simple recipe, is what do we pray for? And that's in three or four. There may be some surprises in here for some of us. So let's take a look at who we pray to. Verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say. Now, Jesus is praying. They've been watching him pray. You know, he's there every day. Sometimes at the end of a very long day, he devotes himself to prayer. He finds a place where he can concentrate and focus on what he's doing. This is part of Jesus's life. And the disciples are saying, we see that. We want, we want that in our lives. So what do we do? 
what Jesus is about to give them is a template for prayer. Now, we can pray this template word for word if we like, but we need to understand what we're praying when we pray the template. So he gives them a framework for prayer. And if you take a close look at what I'm about to show you, you'll see that it's a framework for all of our prayers, regardless of what they're about. So he says, do this. And he starts out with Father. Now, I like Matthew's version of this, chapter 6, verse 9. He says, our Father. And the first thing that we find out is there's something supernatural about what's happening. Whose Father? Our Father. It's a corporate acknowledgement of who we are praying to, our Father in heaven. Now, Pastor Scott gave us a quick lesson on what father means in the Greek. And, you know, there's a popular version of this that runs around, says it's daddy, it's papa. Well, it is, but it's, it's also a lot more than that. When we utter the word father, when we say our father, we're talking about all of us having the same father. You realize that's a theological statement. It's a supernatural manifestation of the unity that you and I have together. We don't say my father, we say our father. And Jesus is teaching them this, saying my father is your father. Do you understand? We're all brothers and sisters. We're all part of the same family. Call it whatever you want. The army of God, the body of Christ, whatever it is, we're all members. Now, it's not just father, it's progenitor, creator, the one who created us. And if you're in the body of Christ, if you have recognized Jesus Christ as your savior, if you have repented from your sins and received him as Lord and savior, then you have eternal life. You're part of that family. Our father. hallowed be your name. Well, that's a fancy word. It's got a little name tag that says hallowed. Now we all know that the name is not a label to the Jews. The name is a statement of character and nature. It's a description of the essence of who our Father is. He is to be revered. Why? Because he's hallowed. He is holy. He is fully, perfectly sanctified. He is pure. He's more pure than anything we've ever experienced. He's so pure that if there weren't somebody to take us to him, that when we sat in front of him, we would die. Hallowed be your name. It's not just a statement. It's a request. My Father, our Father, holy is your name. Holy is your character and nature. Even as you begin to mold me into your character and nature, even as you make me more and more hallowed, more and more sanctified, day by day, I recognize that you are the epitome of holiness. You are my goal. I'm being shaped into your image. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. I love this one because everybody thinks it's got end time connotation. 
that it's eschatological. Send your kingdom come. Jesus told people, go tell people the kingdom of God has come near. Well, what did that mean? Yeah, I, I would have been a lot happier if he would have said, Lois, the kingdom of God is far away. Now it's near. Get it? Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus is now. When we say, your kingdom come, we're saying, Lord, manifest yourself in my life right now. Let your kingdom be made known through me. Let your kingdom be known in me. Let me be an ambassador for your kingdom. Your kingdom is here on earth. Yes, there is an end time. Yes, there is a coming kingdom. But Jesus is here now in me. And may I be a demonstration of the presence of your kingdom here on earth. So when we petition Jesus Christ and the kingdom and for him to reign supreme in our lives, we, we ask for everything that comes with them. Sonship, unity, adoption, renewal, rebirth, transformation, regeneration, sanctification, the fruit of the Spirit. We're asking for all those things to rise up in our lives and coming, flowing from us like rivers of living water. Your kingdom come. You know, if you're born again, somewhere deep down inside you, you have a desire for God to have his way with us instead of our having our own way. Now, we have to battle that from time to time, don't we? But that desire, that desire should cause us to pray. As we see in Matthew 6, the prayers are a little bit different. It's okay. Not Luke got it right and Matt got it wrong. You know, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. I mean, he ran up and down the Holy Land preaching. And so Matthew's got one version. Luke's got another, probably two different times. But when we ask for the kingdom to come, we're really asking for God's will to be done, for our will to be set aside, for his will to be accomplished in my life the same way it is in heaven. Ultimately, our prayer to our Father is that his presence and kingdom will just rise up in our lives. With everything that we say and do, it's an amazing, it's an amazing moment. And it points back to the one who created us. It points back to the one who owns us. Who do we pray to? Well, we pray to the only one worthy of our prayers. We pray to the one who sacrificed himself and died for us and saved us. We pray to God. Now, this sets the tone for the Lord's Prayer. Because up until that, we're kind of halfway through it, right? All we're talking about is who God is. What a way to start our prayer. Focused on God. Extolling his virtues. Understanding where, where we belong. Understanding who we are and who we belong to. We pray to and we pray about God. Okay. So what do we pray for? Well, now we get to put our laundry list in. Okay, now I, I can take it from here, God. I got it. Okay. Well, Jesus, Jesus kind of turns that all upside down. In verse 3, he says, 
give us each day our daily bread. And here we have the only petition in the Lord's Prayer that has to do with our needs. It's the only statement of what we would like God to do for us. We're to ask God to give us. The word here is didome, form of dito, which means to grant us. It's not a demand. It looks a little bit like an imperative in the, in the language, but it's, it's, not, it's not a command. We're not commanding God to do anything. The phrasing here has some incredible implications, and we need to recognize what's happening. There's a recognition that God is the source of our daily bread, that the things we have come from him in this template for our prayers. And it's totally up to him, totally according to his sovereign grace, to grant those things that we ask for. We don't demand them, we ask, and then, then we wait and see what God's decision is. He's not obligated. He's not committed to us. He'll not be manipulated. He won't be controlled. We can't come up with exactly the right words to get God to do the things that we want him to do. He will not be directed. This is a request that is characterized by the humility that Jesus had just taught the disciples. Praying to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that he give us some bread. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I want a bigger house. I want a nicer car. Jesus says, ask him for some bread. And when do we ask for him? We ask it for this day. Now, this is a very specific Greek term. It's not used very often. And its, its meaning, its, its implications depend on when it's said. If you say this at the end of the day, give me this day, my daily bread, you're talking about tomorrow. If you say it at the beginning of the day, you're talking about today. So what you're really asking for is some bread for a 24-hour period this day. And we're not asking for anything beyond that. He just sent the disciples out and said, don't take anything with you. Depend totally upon God. Now this shows up in the prayer. Depend totally upon God. For, for our bread, well, what kind of bread are we talking about? Well, our daily bread, well, it's the bread that we need for the day. But if we read scriptures, we see that that bread has two different meanings, and I think they both apply here. I think Jesus is trying to, to show them something about two kinds of bread. And the very first and most obvious meaning is our daily sustenance. Bread is considered throughout scripture to be a necessity, one of the, the absolute necessary things that we need in life and for our nourishment. So now we see that this is a request for the routine provision. And, you know, for us, this takes on a little bit different meaning for us than it did for them in 30 A.D. Because in 30 A.D., they didn't have supermarkets. 
You know, if the town was big enough, there might be a market in the middle of town where people would bring in things that other people couldn't grow and there'd be some bartering and sharing and that sort of thing. If, if the town was big, there were jobs that were available. But again, if we read scripture, we realize that when you got a job back in that culture, there was no HR department. There were no payroll checks that were released on the 15th and the 30th of the month. You got paid for the work you did that day. You went into work, you worked your day. At the end of the day, your employer would give you whatever you'd earned for that day. Now, that meant that if you got sick or anything happened, you didn't have any money, which means you couldn't buy any bread. And if you're in a place that bartered for everything, if you couldn't work, you couldn't make anything to barter with. So the people that are hearing Jesus say, they're going, I know exactly what he's talking about. He's telling me that God will provide me this day if I trust him. So this petition for daily bread is not a petition for God to give us stuff. For God to give us what we need. And we all know that sometimes the things that we think we need are just the things that we want. The first meaning is give me daily sustenance. Give me that that I need to stay alive. Second meaning, bread's a metaphor for spiritual life in the the scriptures. When the devil tempted Jesus to turn stones to bread, what did Jesus say? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So here's the other type of bread. The Lord's prayer tells us to ask God to nourish our souls on a daily basis. And there's a, there's a similarity between the physical nourishment and the spiritual nourishment for our souls. They Both of these come in and through Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem, a town who was called the oven, laid in a manger, laid in a feeding trough, and calls himself the bread of life. All this comes to bear when Jesus begins talking about pray like this. Do you understand what I'm teaching you? Do you understand what I'm telling you to do here? One of the very last things that Jesus does before he's crucified, we'll do this in just a little bit, is he holds up a loaf of what? Bread. And he breaks it and he says, this is my body. Hmm. So, the only request that Jesus instructs us to make in this pattern, in this template for prayer is on behalf of our personal needs and a request for God to sustain us materially and spiritually on a day-to-day basis. Now, if that's true, if we understand that, it may have an impact on how we pray. I'm convinced that everything in this prayer, if we pray it, puts everything that we are and all our situation in the hands of God and says, have your way with this. I trust you. And I think, I think that's something that we need to keep in mind because our prayers can be dominated, preoccupied with our circumstances, 
Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Please don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm not saying that we don't go to God and say, I'm hurting, I'm grieving, uh, I'm having some doubt, I'm afraid there are things happening. It's okay to do that. I think it's natural to pray about the things that we're going through and to have our circumstances be preeminent in those prayers. I think it's fine to take our troubles to the Lord. Amen. We see this in Psalm 139. Search me and know my anxious thoughts. I think it's okay to go to God with our innermost desires. But here's where we get tripped up, brothers and sisters. We go to him with our innermost desires and our prayers all of a sudden are all about us. They're more about us than they are about our Father in heaven. They have more to do with how we feel about our situations than they do with surrendering to God's will and allowing him to move in our lives. Now, we're willing to recognize that. We're also have to admit that there are times when we as his children are a little disappointed in how he handles things. It happens. There are times when we get frustrated with him. Times when we get angry with him. You know, we're not alone in that. David went through that, didn't he? When you get home this afternoon, take a look at Psalms 10, 13, and 22. David went through the same things. He struggled with the same types of situations that we struggled with. There are times that he felt alienated. There are times that David felt alone. Times that he felt dejected. And the things that he wanted, the things that he desired, the things that he needed, he wasn't afraid to pray for those things, but David was very wise in not insisting upon them. You look closely at every psalm that David wrote, and every psalm that he sings or, or every song that he prays in anger and disappointment and frustration, you'll see that they all have one thing in common. He never ends his prayer in the anger and frustration. He always turns back towards God. There's always an acknowledgement of God's greatness, of his wisdom, of his love, of his power, of his will, of his compassion, and of David's inherent sin. In short, David prayed right into God's holiness. He always ends up confessing that God is God and David is just David. So it's okay. It's okay to, to pray our desires, to pray our feelings, but we've got to be careful not to allow them to become expectations. Not to allow them to become demands that we put on God. When, when our expectations begin to interfere with our walk and our witness and with our relationship with the Lord, then those prayers become obstacles. Get in the way of what God is trying to teach us, maybe. We, we have to try as hard as we can to learn to want God more than we want things for ourselves. That's a challenge. So that this is what Jesus has been teaching in his template for prayer. That the focus of our prayers should be on God, asking him for sustenance daily, and if we can do that, then everything else, I believe, will fall into place. But there's one more thing that we're supposed to ask for. 
Verse 4, right at the beginning. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, Matthew calls them debts. Luke kind of mixes sins and debts. We don't want to get too technical here because what both of them are talking about in every case is an offense against God. And we need to, on a daily basis, ask for forgiveness. Now that, that may be a little bit contrary to some of the things we've been taught. Because there's a really popular myth that floats around is that God forgives and forgets. Pretty hard for an omniscient God to do, a God who knows everything, to forget something. I don't believe God forgets. Scripture tells us that God can certainly forgive sins, but an all-knowing, all-omniscient God, one who knows everything by his nature, I don't believe he forgets them. And I don't believe that, that we're defining forget properly according to Scripture. I do believe that God chooses not to regard our sins in his judgment of us. When we stand before the Lord on that day that we will all stand before the Lord and give an accounting for everything that we've done, he will look upon us and look to Jesus and say, he took care of all that. So God does not put all these sins over in a bucket over and say, we're going to act like it never happened. There was something incredible that had to happen in order for God to forgive us. He doesn't choose to regard them in our judgment. But we need to understand that there may be some consequences for the things that we do. Not eternal. Not getting kicked out of heaven because of something we slept up on. But there are earthly consequences. We see this in the story of David. David sinned with Bathsheba. And he repented. I, I believe David's heart was broken over his sin. I think he was contrite. While David was forgiven and restored, there were still earthly consequences to pay. And if you read the rest of David's story, you find out that there was a lot of grief. There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of division in the family. And his, his life's dream, the fulfillment of his life's dream was denied him. He wanted to build a temple for his God. What could be wrong with that? Except there were consequences for David's sin. Again, he didn't get kicked out of heaven. But there was an earthly price to pay. David was free of guilt. David was free of sin. But he had to deal with the results of some very bad decisions. I think it's easy for us to forget that sin is repugnant to God. It's an abomination as far as he's concerned. Our daily sin, the sins that we commit subsequent to our salvation are just as repugnant so repentance is still necessary in order to be released from the guilt and the shame but we can't run around thinking well I can sin don't worry God will forgive me he's a gracious and merciful God he will but there may be consequences so so we ask for forgiveness we're not asking to be redeemed again we've already been redeemed it was completed once and all on the cross by Jesus Christ. And we are free from the ultimate consequence of sin. But we still need to deal with the daily sins that we commit. 
If we get too casual about it, if we begin to justify our actions, oh God, I know your word says this, but I'm going to do this. If we begin explaining it away, if we got, tell God that somehow we are exempt from doing the things he tells us to do, there may be earthly consequences. This is why this is here in this daily prayer. This is why Jesus tells them to do this. We're constantly struggling with sin. And while it no longer excludes us from heaven, it can make the time that we wait to get there miserable. So we ask for forgiveness. But there's even a condition on that. Verse 4b, for we also have forgiven our debtors. Now this is the assumption that we will be forgiven as we are forgiven. It's also the assumption that as we walk through this prayer, that we see the need for ourselves to be as forgiving as the mercy that we're asking for. In other words, we ask God to measure how much forgiveness we receive for these daily sins by how forgiving we are of others. It's part of the daily repentance. Anybody that tells you you don't have to ask forgiveness for your sins has never read the Lord's Prayer. But what, what, is that, what does that forgiveness look like? Because I just said that there may be consequences. And, you know, we all like to use that kind of as a club. Well, I forgive you, but there's going to be some consequences. And you can see the eyes start glowing and the hands start rubbing. I can hardly wait to see what those consequences are. That's not what we're talking about here. When we're forgiven, we need to look at the one who has offended us the same way that God looks at us. And there is no anger. There's no malice. There is no revenge. It is all put aside. But there may be consequences. Now, what do those consequences look like? Let me, let me just give you an example. If somebody walked into church today and we found out that they were a financial wizard and that they specialized in 501c3 nonprofit church organizations and that they were an expert at it and offered us their help, and we would do what we normally do for somebody in a leadership position. We'd do a background check and find out that they were an embezzler and that they had just gotten out of prison. And they'd been there for 20 years for embezzling some other church or some other company or whatever. So we don't, we don't point our finger, you know what, you're an embezzler, we can't trust you. What's wrong with you? We, we are to greet them with open arms. Our treatment to them is to be filled with mercy and grace and deference but we don't put them in charge of the collection (laughs) I mean the consequence for what this person had done assuming that they're Christians plays out in how they relate to us we're not mad at them we don't find them abhorrent their sin is no worse than ours but at the same time we don't say well it's okay we trust you go ahead and count the money it's all right so this is this is how we forgive We set aside anger and judgment and condemnation. We need to be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Forgive us as we've been forgiving and lead us not into temptation. It's another request, isn't it? It's not that we're afraid that God is going to lead us somewhere we don't want to go. I mean, we have to look at the phrasing here. It sounds that way a little bit. Oh, no, God, that sounds tempting to me. I don't want to go there. 
What this means is lead us in the everlasting ways. Lead us in holiness. Help us, O Father, to avoid temptation. Help us to turn away when the things of the world look glittery and golden and will draw us away from our walk. What it really means is lead us in your holiness. Lead us in our sanctification. So there we've got the two ingredients to our prayers. Who do we pray to? We pray to our God, our creator, our owner, the king of kings, the Lord of all creation. We pray to our father. He's all those things. And we don't want to overemphasize any aspect of that. He's all those things. What do we pray for? Well, if you understand what we just covered, what we pray for is a deeper, more profound, more dependent walk and a better witness to the world of who Jesus Christ is and how he has changed us and is molding us into his image. We pray that whatever we're going through today, that God would give us the things that we need to get through the day and manifest his presence in our lives so that other people can see it. I'm not worried about the future. I belong to the living God. And he has promised to take care of me. And whatever he has put on my plate, I will eat eagerly because he means it to nourish me. And I look at the world around me and I see everything falling apart. And there's a pandemic out there and the political scene is terrible and everybody's fighting and everything. But I am saved. I am redeemed. And I will show Christ. Help me to do that, Lord. That's the Lord's prayer. So I'm going to ask you to stand. How do I pray? Father in heaven. Just say it with me. Father. Father in heaven. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come in me and through me. And into the world around me. Give us. Each day. Our daily bread. And let us not look to the future. Nor the past. Let us not impose upon you. Things that are not good for us. Give us that that we need. Give us nourishment. Help us to grow. And Father, forgive us our sins. Because we have sinned. And we know we're redeemed. But we know you want to sanctify us. Help us, O oh Lord. And forgive us for not forgiving those who have sinned against us. And we pray that as we trust you, as we walk with you, Father, you would lead us in holiness. And we pray in your Son's name. Jesus Christ. Have a seat. Are you ready for communion?